This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Friday, June 21st, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Darkness. We've all been there. We assume. I don't know. It's hard to tell. But while amidst the darkness, you always search for a way for it to be brighter. But you can't come up with a how. And then a light bulb goes off, which allows you to see where you put the video screen. And that, in turn, allows you to watch this video which is literally the funniest film I have watched since they stopped making Police Academy movies. In this video put out by GE to help you in resetting your smart light bulbs called C, the letter C by GE, we meet the happy announcer guy. Welcome to C by GE's smart tips. We're gonna show you how to factory reset your C by GE bulbs, which will unpair your bulb from other devices and apps that it's connected to. So far, so good. I mean, to which it is connected. That would be a trifle formal. I'm fine with that. The announcer does seem unnaturally chipper, given that the task at hand is changing light bulbs. Now, first thing he needs to do is make sure we're all talking about the same light bulb. Here's the first process. Designed for bulbs with this package or for firmware version 2.8 or later. Okay. Let's change that light bulb. Start with your bulb off for at least five seconds. So there's a time on the screen and the timer counts down. That's what's going on. Then turn on the bulb for eight seconds. Once again, there's that eight second countdown on the screen. While we wait that out, allow me to describe the static shot. We see a lamp on its side table and, oh, hold on. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for eight seconds. There is a chair, a crocheted pillow, a blanket draped over the chair, just so. The desk lamp is being turned on and off for two and eight, two and eight, two and eight. Hold on. Chipper announcer is back. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for eight seconds. Resetting the light bulb is a person in a blue shirt. He's framed from below the neck, or she's framed from below the neck to right above the knee, so he can't see a facial expression. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for eight seconds. So we can't see if the person's facial expression is laughing or shock or a rictus of pain and regret. But back to the happiest light bulb person since Uncle Fester. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for eight seconds. Oh, wow. Who would would have expected that? The off for two, on for eight thing. Could you imagine if you had been assiduously following the advice all along only to realize that you had been using a firmware version earlier than 2.8? Funny story. I had an uncle, Uncle Nunzio from Canarsie, and he always turned it off for three and on for seven. And my aunt would yell, Nunzio, what are you doing? You know, it's off for two and on for eight. Wait, hold on. Turn off for two seconds. Oh, don't come back at me with an eight. And then turn it on one last time. The bulb will flash on and off three times to show that the reset was successful. If it doesn't, your bulb may be running on an older version of firmware and will need to try the second factory reset process. Oh my God, there's more. Ready? Okay, start with your bulb off for at least five seconds. No, not okay, not okay, bulb. We are very much not okay if you are going to make me go through this again. Then turn on the bulb for eight seconds. I am out. I am a burned, I am burned out by the light bulb. 
How many people does it take to change a light bulb? Three. One to change the bulb, one to press play on the video, and one to hold down the goddamn chipper announcer until he gives up whatever madman designed a process for putting your lights on. Oh, wait, 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 hold on. Is something different going on? It's not the classic 2828? Okay, I'm gonna listen one last time. Don't burn me. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for two seconds. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for two seconds. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for two seconds. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for eight seconds. Oh, so it's not the two eight. It's the two, 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 eight. I'm going to hunt you down. I will not rest. If there is a God in heaven, you will steer me to this cursed man. For more smart tips about our smart products, go to cbyge.com. Thank you. And forgive me, Lord, for what I'm about to do. No jury in the land would convict. And if they do, and if I get the chair, well, what then? Turn off for two seconds. And then turn it on one last time. On the show today, I spiel about a slightly less infuriating topic than changing a light bulb. It's the task of carrying out an airstrike against a hostile nation. But first, speaking of strangling the menace in the crib. Oh, no. Wait, hold on. Totally different crib we're talking about. Whole new mindset. Babies. Cute little babies. And the kids, they gurgle and coo, but also baffle and poo. Emily Oster is an economist who looked into the scholarship behind all the things we as parents are told to do. And guess what? There is a paucity, a paucity of scholarship. And from this dearth was birthed the book Crib Sheet, a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. Emily Oster, up next. When you have a kid, you're told it doesn't come with an instruction manual. Okay, sure, it doesn't come with an instruction manual, but have you been to Amazon? There are about, I don't know, 18,000 parenting books out there, and people who bought this also bought that. And the thing about the 18,000 parenting books is there's about 18,012 opinions within the parenting books. There's not too much empirical rigor when it comes to parenting. Until now, Crib Sheet, a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool, is written by Emily Oster through the discipline and miracle of economics, because she's a professor of economics at Brown. Hello, Emily. Great to meet you. Hi. Nice. Thanks for having me. Okay. So, Crib Sheet's a great title, but there's this word, relaxed parenting. And I was wondering if from a marketing perspective, was this someone suggested to you? Look, if you just have the words data and, uh, and, and, and from birth to preschool and economics in the titles, people will be stressed out. Tell them this is with the end goal of relaxing parents. It's interesting. I, I don't really remember. I remember how we came up with Crib Sheet because my husband came up with it and he reminds me all the time that it's his idea. Uh, but I don't really remember why we thought relaxed was a good idea. But I think there, I mean, there is something, like for me, I find the data very relaxing. That's my job. I, I like to relax with with data. Um, and I think it is it is the case for some people that kind of knowing what the real facts are, like takes some of the stress of parenting out. Yeah. 
I think that it's relaxing for a person like me and a person like you. I don't know if relaxing is the word, but it fills me in more than the vague descriptions we've always gotten. But I also think that usually uh, the point of communication on the big decisions is a doctor. And most doctors that I talk to, they're very loath to get into the data. Well, I'll give you an example. I remember about 10 years ago when my first kid was born, we did the amniocentesis thing, which they expressed to us as having a very small chance of uh, incurring a miscarriage. And I said, well, what do you mean by very small chance? And they said, well, the statistics are about one in 200. And I said, does that norm for the people who would be having miscarriages in any case at this point in the pregnancy? And she had no answer for that. And I said, well, the one in 200, what kind of studies is that based on? And again, she had no answer to that. And also, uh, as I'm sure you know, that the odds have been sort of revised. And so now the best thinking about this is there are almost no odds. She had uh, this one line, which is, look, look, it's a very, very small chance, but I have to tell you the chance. But for most parents, it's uh, important for peace of mind. And it didn't go beyond that. It was a little frustrating. Yes. I mean, I had the same experience also about amniocentesis, about this kind of testing. And I think there were sort of many parts of that. So one is that, like, yes, that number, one in 200, that's not really based on anything. That's not probably Yeah, the right it would be number. better if it were based on something, yes. Yeah, that yeah. would be best. Yeah. Uh, but I think the other thing was there was sort of this tone that was like, well, one in 200, you know, small. It's yeah. small. Yeah. And you're, they were like, there. it was sort of like they'd come up with that number because they were trying to convey some general sense of this number is small. But it's like, okay, but one in 200 and one in 1,000 and one in 10,000, like those numbers are really, really different for decision making, even though they're all small, I guess, in some aggregate sense. And so I, I somehow there was like they were trying to convey something with that number, but it wasn't the, the truth. Yes. And then there I tried to get into, okay, what are we detecting for? And I forgot what chromosomal detectable conditions that it might be able to pick up. And I was making the point, well, if you, there was a small chance that it wouldn't pick it up. And I was trying to do some more advanced math. And I think that really pissed her off. <laughs> yeah, no, I tried to do that math. Also, I had like a whole long thing about this and you sort of like what is the false negative can yes. people are just like can, yes. you, can you stop now like you, it's like enough it's enough please a, do that on your own time i had a podcast at the time called on gambling and i did the amniocentesis edition i don't know how many people listened to it but the six who did really liked it yeah it's very popular oh god so once the kid is born it's not as if all the questions and all the studies all fall on the same lines so i want to get to some broader questions, but let's just go through the hot buttony type issues and what you found and what the thinking is out there. Uh, first of all, breastfeeding. So it's been portrayed as the magical elixir of life, which has led to the, some shaming of mothers who don't breastfeed. Why was it so, and I, and, and your book points out that the benefits, there are some benefits, you know, gastrointestinal and so forth, but the miracle benefits have been way overhyped. But I want to know I don't know, about 15 years ago, why did it go from, oh, yeah, this would be good to, oh, my God, you won't believe how great it is? So I think there's, it's, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure. So I think there's a couple of things. So one is that, um, is that starting in like the early 1970s, breastfeeding, which had been sort of on the decline, uh, started increasing. And those increases were particularly large among women who were better educated um, and, and richer. Like that was sort of the demographic that started doing a lot of this. And one of the things that, that that meant was that then when you sort of later 
kind of 15 years ago, you went and started looking at uh, the impacts of breastfeeding by comparing kids who are breastfed to kids who are not. You saw a lot of the kids who are breastfed were doing better on a bunch of dimensions, partly because the moms who were breastfeeding are now kind of more educated, uh, higher income, and their kids are doing better for other reasons. So I think part of it is some of the relationships and the data may actually have shifted uh, shifted a little bit over time and made this seem like even more important than it, than it is. Um, so I think that's one piece. The other piece is clearly the messaging around breastfeeding has changed a lot from the sort of early 1980s where it was like, yeah, you should try this. You, it could be something you liked to, you know, you must do this or your kid is going to lose out on all kinds of wonderful benefits and basically never be a successful adult. And I'm not sure how that evolution happened. It clearly did happen, though. Mm-hmm. And do you think that so again, I don't want to gloss over the book mainly deals with what the truth is. And the truth is some very small benefits. But do you f- see a pendulum swinging back on that? Probably not. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, there will continue to be a lot of of promotion of of breastfeeding. I have seen a little bit of, a, of I think, a pendulum switch into, re- into recognizing the difficulties associated with this. And so I think there's been a there's been a sort of push of promotion, promotion, promotion. Like if only people thought this was the most important thing to do, they would definitely do it. I think we now may have gotten to a place where we can recognize like, okay, even people who really, really, really want to do this and think it's the most important thing ever, actually it's kind of hard. And so it's not really enough to promote. We have to also support. Yeah. And so if you talk to people at the AAP, they've sort of talked a little bit about that's the American Academy of Pediatrics. They talk about sort of trying to to do more support and help people who want to breastfeed, you know, breastfeed more. So I think that's a good move. I'm not sure we're going to see any more nuanced uh, information on the benefits anytime soon, though. Another one is maybe from your earlier book, but drinking while pregnant. And when I and the mother of my uh, kids talked about this, she was uh, she wanted to drink while pregnant, and I said to her. Fine, have a drink a week. Don't listen to anyone who tells you that a drink a week is going to be bad. And my theory is just based on Isaac Newton's mom had a drink a week. Thomas Jefferson's mom had a drink a week. By the way, I have no idea if their mothers drank. But like throughout history, people would have a drink a week. And then when I did research on it, in America, the... Well, first I'll tell you, I found an English site and the first sentence was, drink is one of the great pleasures of life. And it basically said, have a drink a week. And then I found an American site and it immediately went to neonatal alcohol syndrome, which to me is like saying, though we have no evidence on a paper cut now and then, we we do know decapitation is bad. So again, it's a little like, you know, if you do it in moderation, you should be fine. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's there, uh, you know, unlike in the case of breastfeeding, of course, like if you drink a a lot, it is really bad. um, And we kind of know that that's very bad. And so there's a sort of there is that in the in the background. But I think that a lot of the messaging has some of the same the same feel of sort of like we're not we don't really want to show people what the what the evidence says because we think they'll overreact or they'll they'll do this differently. So we want to provide this rule, which if you followed it would be great. The only issue is that, like, if people don't follow it, then I think that uh, we sometimes we lose the more nuanced messaging that would help them uh, make the right choices. Yeah. What about circumcision? Circumcision. So, uh, so there's sort of like two camps in the circumcision. There's like circumcision is really important because it prevents against all kinds of illnesses, and then there's like circumcision is barbaric. Um, I think the answer is like circumcision has some health benefits, but they're very small. Uh, it has some risks. They're also extremely small. And so this is a sort of 
example of which there are a bunch in the book where it's really like you just have to decide what your kid's penis should look like, like what your family thinks your kid's penis should look like. The That's whole family, kind of the, the whole, extended family. The, whole, <laughs> yeah. the extended family. Well, I everyone mean, gets look, a vote. Take, take input from anybody. <laughs> you know, your mother-in-law, she should get a vote. Uh, yeah, so I, whoever you are I've involving I've always liked the foreskin myself. <laughs> <laughs> whoever I'm you are involving those choices. <laughs> right. You know, you use the phrase to characterize the uh, opponents of circumcision that people think it's barbaric. And that's true. I had I, I, I fell into a debate with a Scottish comedian about this once. Um, how do you debate or how do you discuss statistics and benefits versus it's barbaric? This is very hard. Uh, and I, this comes up not just in circumcision. I've been having this discussion about, about sleep training, about like sort of things about letting your kid cry, where mm-hmm. people are like, it's oh, very it's hard cruel. to be like, right, the right. evidence suggests this. And people are like, but that's evil. Like, uh. um, and so I think it's hard to meet statistics, meet sort of ideology with statistics. There's some interesting work about sort of how to have hard conversations um, by some guys at, at of the Harvard Business School, I'll yeah. put that aside, uh, which no, sort of you know, they says get, that— They get some of the best and among a few of the brightest, let us say that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so some of this, some of what they talk about is basically if you want to use evidence in a, in a conversation, it is sometimes good to acknowledge when people are coming from a non-evidence-based place and to say, you know, I, underst- I hear that this is like an emotional issue for you, but— uh, and I acknowledge that, but I want to also have a conversation about the about the benefits. And I think sometimes that's that can be useful. But you know, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to have conversations like this across sort of. Well, here's what the evidence says, and yes. you know, here's what I here's what I feel, especially yes. in parenting, which is so that's right. you know we all feel a lot. Well, a lot of feelings. What I what I do with my girlfriend uh, when we talk about this, or actually, I don't even know if I explicitly do it, but she knows that this is how it works. I say something like, "As you know, evidence is my emotion. So you speak your emotional truth, and I will speak my emotional truth. Mine happens to be an evidence based one." That's awesome. She I'm totally going to use that. In yeah, my house. Yeah. yeah, that seems like a lot of people's <laughs> partners would really enjoy that. <laughs> do you think? I don't know. Do you think the uh, your your husband he, is he evidence based or is he emotion based? But you're you know, my both, husband's you're an little, economist. You're no, no, a little no. of We're both, both economists. Too. Yeah, but so aren't you also like, a very anxious economist? I am a very anxious economist. Um, yes, but my my husband is very rational mm-hmm. uh, and very like very evidence based, uh, even more so than I am. So I think uh, I tend to be the more the more emotional one. But I am very yes, I am very anxious. So when you had the worried conversation about going to a place where your daughter might get stung by a bee, how did you? How did he talk to you about that? So I don't think I ever talked to him about that because uh-huh. I think I sort of knew it was so ridiculous. So I think I just kept it on my list of like things for the doctor. And then we get into the doctor and I'm I'm sure he was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're bringing this up. She wasn't, my concern was that she would have an undiagnosed allergy. Right. The, actually, there's a there's a sort of good evidence-based answer to my concern, uh-huh. which is basically when kids are, are stung for the first or second time, they typically would not have a bad reaction, even if they were allergic, because right. it takes a while for that allergy to build up, which was actually totally right because then when she got stung then it was it was fine we put some cream on it and we moved on do you find in general a lot of these choices are either or choices and the choice that is being pushed as uh, trendy or the new way of doing it or the better way of doing it is almost always more the parental time and effort intensive choice I think that's true. The one place that I can think of as that's a that's an exception is this baby led weaning. Mm-hmm. So uh, where like there's this 
some, at least in some places, like this push to like not have baby food, to just give your kid the food that you're eating. Um, and I did that only because it for with my second kid because I was like I couldn't bear it with the, the the tiny jars yeah and the like effort associated with that so I I think that's like one place where I I think it's like lazy parents are winning yeah um, but yes everything else it seems like when there's a new recommendation it's just like do more do more do more better. do yeah. more, more harder do more yeah. harder less <laughs> flex do just do more yeah the point is just to make parenting harder and harder and to make us feel worse about it. You should have to wear your kid all the time. <laughs> Although, with the first kid, I could not do the Bjorn thing. And with the second kid, I figured it out, and it was a godsend. Yeah, actually, I love the Bjorn. With both my kids, they were like, they were totally into it. All right. Crib Sheet, a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool, written by Emily Oster. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, there is the doctrine of the just war. In our popular imagination, World War II was called the good war. Our last president famously said the kind of war he was against was a dumb war. Well, President Trump seems destined to bring about a kind of war that few had ever imagined. The undecided war, which is a war where the U.S., the greatest superpower the world has ever known, never really decides to go to war. It gets decided for us due to the most glaring type of mismanagement imaginable. I fear one day it will be said that the U.S. military was sucked into a conflict with Iran. But in fact, the president purchased the vacuum, positioned the nozzle, and flipped the switch. Yes, the sucking is coming from inside the House, the White House. So in the wee hours of the morning, President Trump tweeted about calling off an airstrike against Iran. Quote, we were cocked and loaded to retaliate last night on three different sites. That I believe. I do believe that. I frequently believe the president is loaded. And, you know, he's gone off half cocked so many times. He's definitely cocked by now. You're all cocked, Mr. President. By the way, if you're scoring at home, one, uncocked and loaded is more dangerous than cocked and not loaded. That is true. Some men get surgery just so they can be cocked and not loaded. Reporters say no aircraft were scrambled. Aircraft get scrambled. Tariffs get slapped. These are our assigned verbs. There is no use objecting. So this was the report. I do believe the report. I don't believe the president, but I will play the president because he told Chuck Todd that he wanted to unscramble that egg, or at least he claimed that the egg never got scrambled in the first place. Mr. Sir, we're about ready to go. I said, uh, I want a better Planes definition. Planes in the air? We're planes no, no, in the we're air? we're about ready to go. Yeah. Uh, no, but they would have been pretty soon. All right. Well, he got around to that a half hour beforehand. Maybe next time he and acting defense secretary Patrick Shanahan will book a hotel room and figure it out over the course of four days. I mean, that usually works. But in the end, all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged and they feared the king for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. Yes, Donald Trump called off the strike in the name of humanity, which seems like maybe a good choice if he hadn't waited until the last minute to think of the people who would have died, if he hadn't scrambled the planes, if he had an actual secretary of defense, if he hadn't provoked the Iranians in the first place, if he hadn't just announced to the Iranians that human shields, those will work, 
These are the consequences of having a dissolute strategy and no process. Bluster, bluster, sanction, crow, posture, Japanese tanker gets attacked. Ooh, yelp, howl, threaten, decry, rattle, taunt. U.S. drone gets downed. Bark, bay, threaten, swear, scramble, cock, load, leak, threaten. And so what what comes next? What comes next in this sequence? When does it ratchet down? Don't you see a pattern in between all the words and anger? There are actual bad things that the Iranian military does to the U.S. military or their allies. Why would the Iranians have any incentive not to do more to tweak this president? The worst case scenario is they get attacked and they make him look like a hypocrite for doing so when he said the last time, ooh, the lives involved. The president's like an inverse Teddy Roosevelt. He caterwauls constantly and wields a tiny twig, but it's not that he never uses it. He did authorize strikes on Syria twice. He did enact tariffs against China after a series of bluffs and backdowns. The pattern isn't all bark and no bite. It's how uncorrelated the biting is to the barking. So here's how this time is going to have to go. We're certainly going to get more mischief from the Iranians. They've been given carte blanche to attack targets, especially if they don't kill anyone. They've been told you will not be struck in retaliation. But of course, how these things go is someone's going to get killed and eventually the United States will counterstrike on Iran. And at that point, Tom Cotton will get tumescent. Lindsey Graham will argue that there definitely doesn't need to be any congressional say so for this strike, and the Joint Chiefs will say, who's the new guy who replaced the old guy who replaced Mattis? I do not know how this ends. I don't know if it ever ends. I just know that Trump isn't managing a process. He's overseeing chaos. He's not even overseeing it. He's causing it, stepping to the side, and tweeting, and doing a couple angry interviews. And all of this seems like the dumbest way to do an undecided war ever. And that's it for today's show. So... You're going to produce the gist. Great. Let's get started. First, hire two producers, Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, for a short-term contract, two months. Then let them go for eight. Then hire them for another two. Then let them collect unemployment for eight. Okay, so you've already hired producers and are now looking to bring on board a senior producer of Slate Podcasts. Let's get started. Give TJ Raphael two weeks off in summer then make her work for eight. When she's leaving for lunch, ask her where she's going to. Then when she comes back, ask her what she ate. Everyone likes that. It's fun to play the I'm pretend I'm mad game. She'll hold that annoyed look for two seconds and then actually yell for eight. Then stop to see if I get the point for two. Then begin whacking me in the head for eight. It's so much fun. She'll threaten to give a couple weeks notice, let's say two weeks, but wind up working for another eight. The gist. Thanks for installing your GE smart light bulbs. Now you'll just have to activate them with your smart speaker. You don't have a smart speaker? That's okay. This two hour and eight minute video should help. Oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening.